Summer's coming to an end, but before we turn the corner toward fall, take a look back at the best conversations on the podcast over the last four months. You'll find links to the full conversations in the show notes. And if you miss an episode, these are the ones, in my opinion, you don't want to miss. I hope you've had a great summer and lots of travel, but there's one person who really never takes time off, and that's future you. Future you is influenced by what you're thinking about, what you're doing, and all the experiences you've had this summer. Professor Hal Hirschfeld of UCLA has done research indicating that it's a really wise move to get a clear and vivid picture of future you, and that'll help you not only down the line, but today. There's a few things that I like to think about. So one is to try to really figure out ways that we can ramp up the vividness of our future self. You first asked about envisioning our future selves. Well, what can we do to make that future self more vivid and more concrete and less abstract? One thing we can do is write a letter to our future self and then write a letter back from our future self. And I think I really want to stress the back part because it kind of forces us to step into the shoes of our future self and see the world through their eyes. There's also like other tools we can play around with age progression technology. Well, I've, I've done this in some of my research. That can work to a certain extent, though I would sort of question whether or not that's going to be effective for somebody who's like in retirement already and making decisions about later in life. The reason I bring that up, though, is because it's sort of another version of making that future self more vivid and more emotional. I would also then say, let's just like engage in some visualization exercises where we try to think about deeply what's going to be my life like? What's my life going to be like? How will I spend my time? Who will I spend it with? Am I working some of the time or not all the time? Am I traveling? What am I doing with myself? I think most people in the retirement space, in the financial planning space, they think of future selves. It's not like this is a foreign concept, but it's always done it for sort of an, an implicit level. You talk about retirement, you talk about decumulation strategies, you talk about annuities, whatever. It's all sort of done at a very abstract, implicit way. But to like really bring the self back into the conversation, who am I? What am I going to be doing? That's where I think we can start to see some, some change in the way we really think about that period of time. So there are a lot of obstacles to navigate before retiring and before you get to future you. And Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Julia Keller has found that one word in particular can be a stumbling block, not only in retirement, but in, in many aspects of life. And that one word is the word quit. It's an emotionally charged one, and she thinks you can be more strategic about quitting and understanding the upside of making sometimes the hard decision to walk away and move forward. We all have them, and we all, we all know that they're there. But we allow ourselves to be distracted by this, as I mentioned, the cultural baggage of grit and perseverance. So when you find yourself maybe having moments of discontent, not a situation doesn't have to be terrible for you to want to leave it behind and go to another, or even begin contemplating another. It doesn't have to be terrible and awful. I often say, it doesn't have to be a Dickensian workhouse for you to decide that, oh, I don't know, maybe this, maybe I can, maybe I deserve something better, something that's going to use my gifts and talents better. But we allow ourselves, as I said, to be distracted by these other things. But we do feel those signals. And one of the points I make in the book, as you know, is that in the animal kingdom, quitting is very much a survival strategy. Animals don't have the luxury of allowing these cultural messages and about grit and perseverance to get in the way. An animal has two goals, as this wonderful entomologist I interviewed, actually, he, he died shortly after our interview, a very renowned entomologist named 
Dr. Justin Schmidt. He's written a wonderful book called The Sting of the Wild. So if you've ever been interested in a bee sting versus a wasp sting versus a hornet sting, he's your man. That book is it. But we had a wonderful conversation. And he pointed out that animals have two goals, to eat and to not be eaten. And actually, that's true of us as well. It really comes right down to that. So how do we do that? And one way we do that is to listen to the signals that are being sent. So to apply it to a human situation as opposed to a, as opposed to a honeybee, we feel that you know, in, w- within ourselves. We know is it when things aren't quite what they ought to be. Maybe not terrible, but not what they ought to be. And if when it comes to, to job situations, what I think we can all do better, myself included, is to be more attentive to what our bodies and our minds and our spirits and our souls are telling us and try to get rid of the cultural baggage and not worry so much about how it's going to look. Because quitting has a lot of shame attached to it. It really does. I was aware of that in the situation I recount in the book. I quit my first try at graduate school. What kept me from just running and fleeing after the first month when it became very clear this was not the right situation for me, what kept me there though, through a lot of extra misery, was the notion of what will people say? What will people think? And I think those of us who've been fortunate enough to have good jobs, and I've had some very good jobs in, in my life, and I've been very fortunate to have had jobs that really did initially work out very well, but then maybe not so well. But what keeps us in those jobs is that idea of like, what are people going to say? I don't have another job lined up. Same thing with relationships. And again, I come back to this theory of abundance, that one thing you can do in listening to your own heart and mind is to try to keep an idea of abundance in your mind as well, and an idea of hopefulness, and an idea of there can be something better. I deserve something better. We all deserve something better. So even if it's not terrible, if it's just not wonderful, you deserve wonderful. And that's in a job, a relationship, a living situation, a political philosophy, a religious belief. We all deserve the very best that we can possibly achieve. You point out in the book that quitting isn't always an all or nothing decision. Why is quasi-quitting an interesting alternative to explore? I coined that phrase, and unfortunately, I, I coined it right after quiet quitting became a thing. You know, I was still writing the book, and I was afraid, oh, no, now are people going to get confused because they're both alliterative phrases. But of course, quiet quitting is completely different. To me, that's just thievery. That just means that you're, that you're getting paid for a job you're not doing, and you're trying to slide around so the boss won't notice that you're asleep at your desk, which seems like, that seems like a kind of a death in life to me, you know, not, not doing the best job you can. But quasi-quitting is something different. I think of it as a rheostat dial, like on the, for a lighting system. You can either have a toggle switch up or down, on or off, but I much prefer the idea of a rheostat dial, quasi-quitting. You don't have to quit everything all at once. You can change your situation in increments and small gradations and see if you can't make it closer to your own liking. I give some examples in the book of, I think some athletes have done that. They change their situation. They don't change everything. They might change their method of doing something. You know, I've read read about a lot of great athletes that talk about as they get older, their strategies for doing their sport and for excelling at their sport has to change. Their bodies have changed. They're older. So they have to change their strategy. And we can all do that. We don't have to quit everything all at once, but we can make small, minute adjustments. One thing I've seen is that many people discover in retirement that there are suddenly lots of opportunities, requests, invitations coming at them fast and furiously. And so an important skill to cultivate is the ability to say no. We spoke with University of Houston professor Vanessa Patrick about her new book, The Power of No, and the research and science behind her recommendations.
So in my research, I identified three main reasons as to why we say yes when we want to say no. One is our concern for the relationships we have with others. So when when people ask us to do something, they're usually our friends, our family, people who are colleagues and acquaintances. And we want to have a good relationship with those people and we want to maintain that good relationship. And so that's one of the key reasons why we say yes when we want to say no. The second reason is about uh, ties into our reputation. We want to be seen positively in the eyes of people. We want to be seen as capable, as confident, as able to handle the things that are thrown our way. And the third thing is, we have never really learned how to say no effectively. Throughout our lives, we've kind of tried to accommodate people's requests and be cooperative and helpful and givers more than takers. And society in many ways kind of shapes that sort of behavior and rewards that sort of behavior. And so we have never really learned to look inwards and think about how do I say no to the things that are not aligned with what I want to do or what I want to achieve. And you highlight in the book that saying no is a super skill that people can develop. What are the key benefits? So saying no effectively to the things that do not matter, to the things that do not align with your purpose, to the things that you really don't care about, and frankly make you grumpy, is super important to learn. Because at the end of the day, when we spend our time doing things that we really don't care about, we become resentful, and we really dislike how we are spending our time. It doesn't meet our own expectations, and it doesn't give us meaning. And I think all of us at some stage, especially perhaps, you know, once we've lived a full professional life, we want to live a life of meaning and we want to feel like we have, that we are living fully a, a good and meaningful life. And that fulfillment cannot come from squandering your time doing things that you really don't want to do. Well said, and we want to avoid grumpy. I was in... New York City <laughs> of a little while ago and asked Siri, where can I get a cup of tea that's closest to me? And she recommended Cafe Grumpy, which my wife got a kick out of. <laughs> it's so true. I mean, I think that recognizing what makes us grumpy and staying clear of those grumpy incidents or people that make us grumpy is so important for our own well-being and mental health. Absolutely. I find your approach of empowered refusal quite interesting. How, how do you explain it? So empowered refusal is a way of saying no that stems from your identity. So it's based on my research where I looked at how does a no come across most effectively? How are you be able to say no without getting pushback from other people, without getting into a negotiation? A persuasive no. And what I found in my research is when you say no and you anchor it in your identity and your no reflects who you are and what your values, priorities, preferences, and beliefs are, then you come across as much more effective in the way you say no. So you probably got a good routine of working out. There's something you do that keeps you fit and strong. Maybe it's going to the gym. Maybe it's a walking routine. Maybe it's some weights. Maybe it's a sport you're involved in or all of the above. Those are all good things. 
But what if there's something else that would be really important to also, quote unquote, take to the gym? Well, that might be your mindset, particularly as we get older. Stephen Codler thinks so. He's a New York Times bestselling author and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He's one of the world's leading experts on flow and human performance. He's written 11 books that have become bestsellers, and he's been nominated for the Pulitzer twice. And he thinks there's a lot we can do with mindset that'll help us really achieve peak performance aging. Let me start with definition. So at the Flow Research Collective, we're on the executive director. We're a peak performance research and training organization. We define peak performance as the following. Peak performance is nothing more or nothing less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. And this is, by the way, not a new idea, right? You go back 100 years, William James in the very first psychology textbook said the great thing in any education is to make our nervous system our ally and not our enemy. And by nervous system, he meant brain and body, basically. So not a new idea, but that's really what we mean by peak performance. Peak performance aging, by extension, is getting our biology to work for us rather than against us when applied to the challenges and opportunities the second half of our lives, right? Very simple what I mean by that. Bigger picture, the old idea about aging. I like to call it the long, slow rot theory, right? And I'm sure you guys have talked about it a ton on, the, on this podcast. It's the idea that all of our mental skills and all of our physical skills decline over time, and there's nothing we can do to stop the slide. And this was the story, unless you happen to be in your 20s, and then it might have changed a little bit. This is the story we all grew up. This is the story we were all told, right? I grew up with it. You grew up with it. And most of us believe parts of it, all of it, but it's, it's there in our, in, our, in our thinking and our culture dangerous idea. And we'll probably talk about that later when we talk about mindset in a second, but it's also not true. That's the cool part. It was true up to about like, it started the long slow rot theory. A lot of people don't know this. It starts with Freud. Freud makes a statement in 1907, writes something in, in his book, Beyond Psychotherapy, and basically says, you can't do psychotherapy in anybody over 50. They're just, their brains aren't flexible. They're no longer educable. Right. And that's the beginning of the long slow rot theory. And by 1994, we have just proved him right in like 400 different ways. We can tell you in exacting detail about what happens to the brain and the body over time. And then in 1995, data starts showing up that says, hey, wait a minute, not so fast. Right. And it's some of the data is studies that got started on longevity back in the 70s that finally get finished 20 years later because they've got data. And those start appearing and we start looking at that. Some of it is we've got new brain imaging technology and new genomic screenings and a whole bunch of tech shows up. The upside is that where we are now, 2023, is every single thing we thought was declined over time. There's nothing we could do to stop the slide. We now know they're all use it or lose it skills, right? So if we can hang, train these skills, we get to hang on to them and even advance them far later in life than we thought possible. So if you ask me colloquially, what is peak performance aging? It's how do we advance this stuff, right? It's, it's how do you kick ass to you kick the bucket? That's like colloquially, that's what we're talking about here, right? Like quite simply. And, but mind you, I'm not exactly talking about, this isn't longevity science. This is man aging. You'll, that's a benefit. You'll get some of that. That's a different side of this equation. It's advancing at the same time that we're having this conversation, which is great. This is a different set of, this is about like the quality not the quantity. It'll help with the quantity, but it's really about the quality. All about the health span, not the lifespan. Quality of health span, I think. Yeah. Well, so, so 
you mentioned mindset. Given that that landscape, what should the new mindset be that we should be shifting to and embracing? So this is wild. One of the deepest findings, if you get into like aging right now, is that the mind-body connection is so unbelievably tight that all the major levers, all the biggest things we could reach for are actually psychological tools. They've got neurobiology underneath them, which is why they work, but those are the huge interventions. And nowhere is this clearer than in the work on mindset. Now, this is very old research. It dates back to Ellen Langer at Harvard in the 80s, 70s, right? Goes all the way through to today. Becca Levy, her, her student who's at Yale, it's brilliant, right? Has carried a lot of that forward, but they're not the only ones, but they're the big examples. But like, what do we know? A positive mindset towards aging, meaning my best days are ahead of me. I think the second half of my life is going to be filled with thrilling, wonderful, exciting possibility. That's all we're talking about, right? It translates to an extra eight years of healthy longevity. This means if you're morbidly obese and have a shitty mindset towards aging and you want to change, you can only change one thing, change your mindset. It's going to have a bigger impact. It has more or as much of an impact as quitting smoking if you're a chronic over a pack a day smoker. I mean, these are big, big impacts. And here's the flip side. We also know if you have a shitty mindset towards aging, right? If you grew up suffering ages, right? The most acceptable stereotype in the world, Becca Levy's work at Yale tells us by the time you're 60 years old, if you were exposed to ageism or you have a bad mindset towards aging, you have a 30% greater memory decline after 60. That's shocking, right? That's insane. And you don't want to mess with those odds. Now, there is, there's a deeper question about how do you shift a mindset? And we could talk about that a little bit if you want. But as far as you know, the mindset question, it's mindset and robust social connections are probably the, you know, the first two things you want to reach for if you're interested in peak performance aging. What can we learn from a 102-year-old doctor who still practices as a consulting physician? Well, tons. Dr. Gladys McGarry is the author of The Well-Lived Life, 102-Year-Old Doctor, Six Secrets to Health and Happiness at Every Age. And she shared with us that she thinks there's a major battle we need to monitor and come down on the right side of, and that's managing the tension between two things, love and fear. Well, the basic healing essence is love. And if we're in a life situation where we aren't understanding about love, we're going to have a really hard time working with healing because that's what I found my parents were doing. They were loving the people. And I knew that that's what we was the essence of it. Native Americans have known this forever. And even the Bible says God is love. Well, you know, if you're going to work that way, you better get some basic understanding about what love is. And so it was when we don't, I think most any modality that we use, if it's used in a loving attitude, in a loving outreach to the position within the patient themselves, then you're going to get some kind of response. But if it's, it's just didactic, you know, this is what you got to do, it may not work. It may, but it may not. So the thing that I think is the key and the essence of tying the whole thing together is that life and love 
are absolutely integrally word work together. I mean, they, if you're going to have life and you're going to have a good life and you're wanting to live and, and all of that, you better have a lot of love pouring in and out of it. And in your book, you write about the contrast between love and fear and the tension there. Yeah, people think that fear is the opposite of love. And I don't see it that way. I think it's the lack of even looking for or understanding love that is the opposite of, because fear has its own use. <laughs> it's adrenal energy that has a lot of use, but it's a good thing some places. And it allows us to set up, you know, well, the whole business. But so it's not opposite to love. So one thing that stood out to me in your book, among many, was the 10-year plan. Tell us about the value of a 10-year plan. Well, in my life, <laughs> there have been so many things that I've reached for and wanted to get done and so on. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And I've found that if you make your plan too short, you get discouraged. <laughs> But if it's a 10-year plan, it gives you some reaching area, you know? Okay, well, I didn't make it this five years, but maybe maybe another two years, maybe I could make it. It's the reality that life has to move, and as it's moving, it takes time. Maybe you've noticed a lot of articles on the problem of loneliness. It really became exacerbated in the media coverage during and following the pandemic. But Benita Cooper, a Harvard-trained architect who had just moved to Philadelphia in her 20s, noticed it back in 2009, and she decided to do something about it then. She started a small project with the Philadelphia Senior Center with six people at lunchtime. And that's blossomed into a not-for-profit organization today called The Best Day of My Life so far. She's a role model for anyone at this stage of life who is thinking about how to make a difference, how to give back, and how to really do something meaningful going forward. So your listeners might get a kick out of this. My day job, I'm actually an architect. I have my own firm. We do architecture, interior design. We also actually make custom furniture. So it's a very robust architecture firm that I lead. And tell us about how the best day of your life so far began. The best day of my life so far began officially with a very small um, storytelling group that I started in 2009. It was official, but it was also modest. I started with just pen and paper and an invite to older adults in the Philadelphia area to join me around the table once a week to share their life stories. I explained to them that it was not only to meet older adults around the table, but also to inspire younger people, especially their own family members, whether the family members were near or far. Because I, in addition to starting the weekly group, also started a blog. And that was what I was going to be able to use to share the stories to people that were not in the room. And what inspired you to start it? My inspiration is the friendship and stories that my late grandma told me. Our friendship began with 
a single phone call. She had been uh, my grandma all my life, obviously. And actually for many years, I lived just a couple blocks away from her. And those were small blocks. I literally was just, you know, steps away from her. And I would go over for dinner all the time, but I never really understood who she was as a person because I never took the time to talk to her beyond the normal day-to-day things. But in 2006, I remember feeling homesick. I was living in Philadelphia at the time. It was after a long day of work, but all day long, I've been just thinking about being homesick. And at the end of the day, I decided to give her a call. It was the first time I'd ever called my grandma just to say hi. I thought we would just say, how's it going? How's the weather? And be done with that call. Instead, she opened up to me about a devastating story from her childhood. But what struck me was the courageous and positive tone with which she told about her past experience. I asked her if I could call her back to hear more stories, and she laughed the happiest laugh I'd ever heard. And so to this day, I remember that sound in my head. And that is what I mean when I say the best day of my life so far, which is the name of our organization. And your organization has evolved since 2009. How does it work today? My organization now has multiple programs, still with storytelling groups as our core, core, core program. Instead of just me sitting around one single table, which is the format of storytelling group, we have groups in different cities and towns. We do events. We do professional development seminars and programs for people in the care professions. We also have a professional network for multidisciplinary leaders who are working on social connection for older adults, intergenerational audiences in some way. In addition, we just launched a new program that's focused more on youth so that they too can gain the skills that our volunteers and care professionals have been learning to reach out to older adults. There are also more specific things we do within each of those programs that we can talk about in a little bit, if you'd like. Great, thanks. And you mentioned social connection. Social isolation is a major problem, obviously, and certainly something we saw become even more acute during the pandemic. What are your thoughts on social isolation and how the organization helps in that regard? Yeah, so social isolation, even without knowing the very long word, was what I was really trying to do even on day one of the very, very first storytelling group. I had no experience, no formal experience with working with older adults. I was trained as an architect, but I knew what it meant to be a granddaughter who listens. No more, no less. I I would always call it a soft spot in my heart for older adults because I didn't know a better word for it. But I think what I was really trying to do was to cultivate and foster a sense of real connection between people. And I knew in my heart, just from my pure joy of becoming friends with my grandma, I knew 
in my heart that older adult stories were a vehicle to bring people together in a very real way. And so it's not just the isolation of the older adults, but the isolation of the younger generations who listen. And it's the power of older adult stories that bring the different generations together, but also bring different older adults who might be in the room doing the same thing together. So from, I'd say 2009, isolation was kind of rooted, embedded in my heart in the group's mission. The group grew into the organization, the nonprofit organization under the same name, the best day of my life so far. And of course, fast forward 11 years, then 2020 came around with COVID and isolation suddenly was a word that appeared in normal speech and normal newspapers in the mainstream. Prior to that year, it was a word that lived in academic journals, in the health industry. I was always used to using that word. I became very used to using that word, but I was shocked by how everybody else started using that word. It was because COVID brought about not just, COVID was not just a pandemic in a physical sense, but due to the physical separation, we all had to do a mental and social isolation at a very large scale developed. And so younger people, younger generations, and I just mean everybody younger than older adults when I say that, were able to share a feeling that most older adults have always had to feel just by being old. They have older, just by being older, they have had that feeling. So that's just to say that isolation is now acknowledged as a shared experience. And now academic journals are talking about it in that way as well. Social connection is the solution for isolation, but it must be true connection. It can't just be a friend request that's accepted on social media. It must be genuine human interaction. Yeah. So those are some of my thoughts about those two words. You'll find links to the full podcast conversations in the show notes. I hope you'll find one that you missed or perhaps one you'd like to revisit. You'll find them all in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Retirement Wisdom Podcast. Our mission is to help you retire smarter by focusing on different ways in which you can design your life on the non-financial side of heading into your next phase. Thanks for listening.